Designcast Podcast, the podcast for design and STEAM educators. Hello and welcome to Designcast, a podcast where I interview a wide range of excellent guests in design and STEAM education to get their unique perspectives. My name is Jason Reagan and I use my 20 plus years of experience as a design educator to dig deep into complex issues. This podcast has one simple mission, to create a community of people around the world that are interested in design and STEAM education. Each episode, I chat with guests from all corners of the design world, from classroom teachers to authors and even to educational consultants. We discuss a wide range of topics that we feel are relevant today. I do want to ask you that if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review, rate, subscribe, share, or download from your favorite podcasting app. This helps the podcast get discovered by listeners that might not find it otherwise. Also, it helps me to continually define the direction of future guests and episodes. Feel free to drop by my website, www.jasonreagan.ga, to leave me a comment or to sign up to be considered as a future guest on future episodes. Also, don't forget to stop by Anchor and leave me a voice clip that could even end up in an upcoming show. Thanks for listening. So let's get to it. I had an awesome opportunity to speak to Dr. Phil Cummins for this episode of DesignCast. Phil is the managing partner of educational leadership and development, governance, and strategy at A School for Tomorrow. Our discussion is, of course, lively and focuses predominantly on how character education factors into the evolving educational landscape globally. He is such a positive and fun person to chat with that I am confident we could have spoken for many hours on a wide range of subjects. You can connect with either Phil or A School for Tomorrow through the links listed in the show notes. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this chat with Dr. Phil Cummins. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Welcome back to another episode of DesignCast. And today I'm humbled and honored to have Dr. Phil Cummins with me today. Dr. Phil, how are you, sir? Jason, I'm 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 doing very well today. We're only three and a half hours away from yet another lockdown here in Victoria in Australia, but that's all right. you know. Even though I'm in South Korea, I'm able to watch ABC Australia and I've been following the whole lockdown saga over the cases. And so my heart is with you guys. I'm thinking about you and, you know, I hope you have some books that you can be reading while you're in lockdown. Plenty of books and pe- plenty of podcasts too, Jason. I'm sure. I have no <laughs> doubt. And we will get to that point very soon. So Phil, do you mind kind of elaborating on, first off, what your current roles are? And then if you don't mind backing up and telling us a little bit about how you became involved in education. Yeah, sure, Jason. Thank you for that. So I am the managing partner of A School for Tomorrow, which is a global network that supports 
students and teachers and school teams and school communities to thrive in their world. And we work with schools and school communities all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, United States, Canada, UK, Europe, South Africa, Southeast Asia. So we've been going for about 12 years now. It started, I founded an organization called Circle, the Center for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education, which is now our research institute. So over the past decade, we've been running the world's longest and probably largest research project and program into character education, which funnily enough, we've decided coincides with what an excellent education is, which is all about preparing future fit students. I'm professor of education and enterprise at Alpha Crucis College as well too. I'm a father of three and I have a deranged puggle as a pet. I love it. That's great. So how did you get involved in education to begin with? So it starts when I'm, I'm 19 and I've walked out of my school saying I'm never going back ever again. <laughs> I'm a very, very bright student. And about six months after I'd left and I'm, I'm beginning my undergraduate study, which was in arts and in history and law at the University of Sydney. And for those who are American listeners or listeners in other parts of the world, in most of Australia, you begin your professional studies at bachelor level and you do it as a combined degree with a generalist degree. You know, you tend not to do it as a, like a master's program. So that sounds strange, but believe it or not, people do education differently in different parts of the world. Anyway, there I am in a room with a thousand baby lawyers and I'm thinking, get me out of here. I just don't want to be a part of this. Shortly after that, my old history teacher rang me up and said, do you want to come and teach a class? Uh, sort of thing. And I got, I got hooked into it. And in those days, working in an independent school, I could do it essentially as an apprenticeship before I had my degree qualification. So by the time I'd finished my undergraduate studies, I was, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been a head of department and a housemaster and, and things like that and coach cricket and rugby and debating and so on. I had a fairly rapid rise, you know, the first 10 years or so in my career and, until, you know, I was, a, I was deputy head of a school. And then by 34, I was the head of a school. And at 39, I had one of those years in no particular order. My father died of cancer and he'd been struggling with it for about 15 years. And we thought he'd beaten it, but he got a second primary. It took him, took him away pretty quickly. My wife and I managed to get ourselves divorced. And then we had to relocate back to my hometown of Sydney, more my original hometown of Sydney, because Juliet um, got herself another job. And it was my turn to move. And, and so there I am, father dying I have to move, I'm coming to the end of my contract and the job that I thought I was born to do, I hated it. Well, what am I going to do? So the following year, I, I spent some time working for a mate of mine who's now a client and he needed, he was running, he was running the school and he needed somebody to come in and do a bunch of his work who didn't want his job. So that was clearly going to be me. And out of that, we kind of worked out this whole notion of working with schools rather than in a school. And so founded the Research Institute, took over a company that had been around for about 25 years and was the leading consulting group in education in my part of the world. Within two years, we'd, we'd taken it to the rest of the world. We had a bit of a tech piece around it, built an amazing team around uh, what we do. Extraordinary people with a real vocation for education. And since then, you know, it's, we work with literally hundreds and hundreds of schools all over the world and hundreds of thousands of students are impacted by the work that we do, um, which is all about improving outcomes for more learners. You know, that's, that's what we're really, really interested in doing. Last year, year during the pandemic, just as it started, you know, a former client of mine sat down with him over a, over a glass of wine at a 
cafe just down the road, a little wine bar down the road from me and said, why don't we do a podcast? And that was Adriano, the, the notorious ADP as we call him. And since then, he's, he's come on full time with us. He's helped us to craft the notion of a school for tomorrow. And we have this little podcast called the Game Changers Podcast, which is now the leading education podcast in our part of the world. We reach 56 countries. We've had over 120,000 episode listens since March last year. You know, it's what a world we're living in right now. Well, as a podcaster myself, those are impressive numbers. So congratulations on that. That is fantastic. And I think anyone who's ever done a podcast or been a guest on a podcast knows how much work goes into it. It's a labor of love. And uh, that is great, man. I love love your podcast. I love the way you guys have laid it out. It's really fun. And uh, there's a lot to be learned. So thank you guys for continuing to push that through. There we go. Well, I, yep. but look, look, we, we, look we, we, have, we have great fun doing it. It's a real privilege for us to be able to talk to educators around the world. The whole notion of game changes is that it's not Adriana and me. I mean, we're, you know, we're a history teacher and an art teacher just talking about stuff. It's, it's really the, the heroes are the, the game changers themselves. And those are the people who are there holding a light for all of us to, to say that change is possible in education. You know, you know, the, the funny thing about our profession is that the, the people who are born to spend time in classrooms with students are warm and relational and, and will, will do that thing that adults really don't want to do and that spend all day with kids. Uh, sometimes, that, that, you know, they find change very, very difficult. That's not all teachers, but, you know, some teachers find it very difficult. It's not helped by the culture of our staff rooms because everywhere you go the culture of staff rooms is a culture of complaint rather than a culture of positivity and it's a culture of deficit rather than a culture of renewal you know so um it's it's not necessarily helped by that but we were convinced that there were enough people out there who really wanted to see examples and i guess the success of the numbers shows that that's what people want they want people to show them how to take the big step forward and up and that's what we try to do to learn from these people is is just a tremendous opportunity along the way look at what our profession has done over the last 18 months you know we spent 30 years fighting technology in the classroom and everywhere you go you hear stories of teachers saying oh yeah we did it overnight we did it it took us a week and sure we're tired after a year and a half of doing this. But my goodness, we're doing the best teaching we've ever done in our lives because we're mindful, we're attentive, we're paying attention to the principles of design around what we're doing. We're not just going through the motion. We're putting the wellness of ourselves and our kids first. And if we're not doing that, well then, to use Australian parlance, we're bloody idiots because how you could imagine you could do learning properly or you could inspire learning properly if you're not taking care of yourself, I don't know. But, you know, we've learned that that which we said that we could not do, that we needed more time to do, that we didn't know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, the reason why we didn't do it was because we didn't want to do it. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we didn't put technology into the classroom because we just didn't want to do it. We liked the way we did it. You know, maybe 30 years ago or 20 years ago, there was an argument to say that that incorporating, you know, a technology, technology-enriched learning environment wasn't necessary. You're kidding now if you, th- yeah. if you think that, that. Our kids are walking into a world where everything is enhanced by technology, certainly supported by technology. We hope it's enhanced, mm-hmm. although, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that some of the applications <laughs> around the world do that, yes. but do yeah, you know no. what I mean? So yeah. we, we, have a, we have a moral responsibility to respond mm-hmm to the world as it is and the world that's going to be and prepare students to thrive in that.
Well said. I could not have said that better myself, and I completely agree with you. And I think complacency that would, had crept into the education world as a whole has disappeared because the folks who were complacent and couldn't change, they're not teaching anymore. They've done. They've decided to do something else. But, uh, yeah, and imagine any other industry, what they would have had to do over the last 18 months, how long it would take them to be uh, able to pivot the way, like you said, overnight teachers said, this is what's good for the kids. And so, wow, that was well said. Thank you so much for sharing that with me, Phil. And I completely agree with you. And so I just want to back up for a second and ask, you're, you're involved in a lot of projects. And so what's what's really exciting about the projects that you're doing right now? So uh, thank you. Thank you, Jason. That's very, very kind of you to say those words. In terms of, look, there's, there's the, the podcast is, is an amazing project. But really, the, I think the thing that's exciting me at the moment is learning about the capacity of our colleagues to do that which they thought they couldn't do and to watch the adaptive expertise and self-efficacy of our colleagues and then to see that reflected in the learning of the students, which is increasingly becoming self-determined. So, you know, Jason, I'm a a high school teacher. Most of my teaching, uh, I did have the opportunity to work with the real teachers in primary at some point and to do a little bit down there. But really, I'm a high school teacher and I tended to work with older kids because of the nature of the, you know, ancient history and things like that that I taught. I tended to focus on that area and, 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 you know, what you would call middle, some of the middle school kids as well, too, in in an American context. But, you know, you can walk into a classroom of 15-year-olds and you know you've lost the war because... They're playing a compliance game, aren't they? They're sitting there and they are bored to tears. They've got glazed over eyes and it's just an endurance test. We do a lot of work around the character piece as well too. And if I can bring those two together, there's a wonderful, wonderful head of mathematics who's now a more senior in, in her school at a school in, uh, in Auckland, in New Zealand. And, and she was sitting there and going, well, why, why do we want to be deliberate, targeted and intentional about the character of students? Why, why do we want to teach um, to character? Why can't we just teach the stuff? And, you know, I've got a theory about the stuff. You know, the stuff is important, but if we teach stuff just for the sake of stuff, you know, I think the origin of the Peloponnesian War is interesting stuff, but it's only interesting and it's only relevant because it teaches us about human nature and why things happen and how people behave and the fact that we're not rational people and we're irrational after all and that, you know, the fog of war and all of those sorts of things. So she was asking me, I've got to go and teach, she said, I've got to go and teach a, a class on quadratic equations in 15 minutes. What does this character stuff have to do with it? And I said, well, you know, if you teach a bad lesson, and we all teach bad lessons, let's be honest, Jason, we all teach bad lessons and, you know, that's, that's the way life is. If you teach a bad lesson, then all they're going to learn about is resilience and they're going to learn about it accidentally because they're going to have to put up with a bad lesson, aren't they? But if you do an okay lesson, they're going to learn something about diligence and persistence and temporary failure leading to success, which is all about, you know, a, a better form of resilience. And if you teach a great lesson, they're going to learn about problem solving and that problem solving is not just solving a problem. It's about an approach which you can then carry into all aspects of your life that you need to be methodical, that you need to show you're working, that you need to collaborate, that you need to adv- ask for advice when you have... It's all those the ridiculously termed soft skills, which aren't in fact soft skills. They're the essential skills of problem. That, that, that's what a solution architect does. That's what a team creator does. That's, that's, what, that's what our world needs right now is people equipped with those skills. So that's what, that's what a lesson 
with year 10 kids, you know, or, you know, 10th grade kids teaching quadratic equations does. So when you, when you take what's happening with the teaching profession around the world, which is, which is waking up to its own potential and its own possibility, and you take the understanding that we need to be, we need to frame the whole of learning within the growth and development of the character, competency and wellness of every student, that natural and normal developmental journey, which we would call at a school for tomorrow, the pathway to excellence, which is all about saying, how do I find my purpose and act on it? Then suddenly we're, we're, we're moving into different territory here because we're growing people. We're not teaching stuff. We're growing people. Well, I'm excited after hearing all that you've had to say there, Phil. <laughs> I think that's great, Ed. That's great. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking about this holistic approach to education that you're describing. And you're right. I mean, traditionally, we taught in boxes and in really compartmentalized sections. And I think the character education, that holistic approach, those soft skills, I don't like that word either. Uh, so I'm glad that you brought that up. <laughs> but I think that those those are the things, if you look at what the 21st century needs in their workers and in their citizens, the things you're describing are exactly it. It's not necessarily how to do a quadratic equation, is it? No. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit – look, I, sometimes I give the example of long division, but then I was working with a school the other day which proudly announced that you no longer have to teach long division in the fourth grade. But, but you know, none of us ever used long division, ever. And if we did, it was only because we didn't have a calculator at hand. It's the framing of the learning of something and understanding the essential knowledge and skills and dispositions and learning habits that, that, that frame that that's important. Sometimes when people talk about holistic learning or, or the whole of education, they think that you're going to go all sandals and socks and peace, love and lung beans with them and all of that sort of stuff where framing your learning within the whole of learning, you've still got to get your stuff right. You've still got to pay attention to the detail. You've got to know the outcomes you want. You've got to be very careful about the type of assessment and reporting that you're going to... You have to be thoroughly professional. But what it is, is that you are framing your stuff, your little piece of stuff that you're, you're teaching at two o'clock on a windy Thursday afternoon when everybody would rather be outside, you know, either kicking or chasing a ball or, or staring in the distance and, 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 and dreaming of things. Your stuff has to be framed within the narrative of a person's life. And if they don't understand what came before, what's happening now, and what's going next, if they haven't got the language to describe that. So, you know, I'm really trying not to use words like metacognition and, pe and pedagogy and all of that, all of that sort of stuff, because that just gets in the way. You know, it's, we need to understand that every kid is on a journey. Every learner is on a journey. Every learner has is, is, as my colleague Adriano would say, at home to a, to a unique life and is full of infinite possibility around in and what they do. Then, you know, as my, as my colleague, Mr. Adams, Mr. Brad Adams would say, you know, he, he, he would talk about the, the need to, to support, to challenge and then to inspire every student to keep them in their groove and hold them to their purpose within a culture of high aspirations, pathways to success, and, and he would call that because he's North American. So he'd talk about that as a, as a secret sauce because, of course, all the North Americans are obsessed with secret sauces and burgers and things like that. But that's, that's the secret sauce, you know, and I talked about that research earlier about that intersection of an education for character and, and, and the hallmarks of an excellent school. That's what sits at the heart of it. And, you know, we can articulate what a framework for that looks like. You know, all, 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 all your listeners who are expert design people 
you know, and 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 backwards design people and all of that sort of stuff. Well, you all know about that. You, you see a picture of what you want. You break it down into its component parts, and and you work you work on the roadmap to get there. And as you get there and along the way, you tick it off because it's done. And the things that you want to achieve are the things that you teach. Because why would you teach to something else and then not align your assessment to it? Like that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense at all. You're absolutely right. I th- you're you're actually preaching to the choir. I I actually feel Hallelujah. yes, sir. Amen. <laughs> yep. It's it's one of those things growing up in the South. But so Phil, let me ask you this. So this is fantastic work. Uh, we could talk all day about the work that you're doing. What do you see happening in the next year, two years, five years, ten years with these projects that you're working with? Oh, look, look. If I could tell you what was going to happen six months from now, I think I'd be doing quite well under the current circumstances what i will do look if i can frame it if i can frame it within um, the context of what we're experiencing around the world right now i think there are some people who've been holding their breath waiting to go back to the way it was that ain't going to happen it's not going to happen because what out of every experience you know I'm i'm a historian i'm a hegelian thesis antithesis produces synthesis we've lived through an experience which is different we are not going to abandon the good things that we've learned from it you know, regardless of how much resistance there might have been to some of those things in the past, the stuff that is good, we will take and we will adapt and we will keep moving forward because that's what we are. We are human beings. We are learning creatures. We're good at learning, you know, so so we are going to learn and we're going to adapt that along the way. My sense is that we are living in a time where having an ethic, having moral character, which is we would describe as doing good and right in the world, the propensity to do good and right in the world, is even more clear. And that notion which we might have had in schools, probably when you and I were at school, where teachers would say, look, I'm not going to teach values because I don't want to impose my values on you. You form your own values, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, that was just a big charade because everything we do imposes values. You get kids to line up before class, you're teaching them about order. And logic, aren't you? You get them to sit in a de- you know, behind a desk and raise their hand. You're talk- talking to them about sharing time and space and resources with each other. We understand now that we need to be explicit about the values, but we also need to be deeply respectful of the rights of individuals to form them in the way they are. Well, at least I'd like to think we are. I mean, I think there are, I think there are some parts of the world which are still pretty prescriptive around that stuff. I think, I think we are understanding the importance of helping students to develop high-performance learning. I think we are mind, deeply, deeply mindful in our world now about belonging, aren't we? At times now, I think we're, 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 we're perhaps too conscious of that. But we, we, we don't, you know, we understand now that we need to prepare a seat at the table for everybody and that we need to understand that some people have been held back from coming at the table. And you know what? They're not happy about that. And we need to be respectful of that. And we need to prepare, you know, and we need to allow them to take their seat at the table. And you know what? They're going to dominate the conversation for a while. So be it. You know, other people have had their turn previously. So you put all of that together. And what that says to me is that it's time for us over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years to think much more carefully and intentionally about being human-centered. We've talked about for years about being student-centered and we never achieved that. You know, teachers were still telling kids what to do. But I think what we need to understand now is that, uh, to be deeply conscious of where where the humanity lies in everything that we do. If you're going to be an English teacher, and we were just joshing about English teachers earlier before we started talking, but, you know, 
what what do English teachers do? English teachers don't teach about rhyme and rhythm and meter and all of those things. Yeah, sure, sure. You can't. You've got to do your grammar and your syntax, but that's so that you can understand language and communicate and learn about humanity. We don't learn about. I'm going to take uh, take a thing from St. Mark's of Texas here, who are leaders in this area. You don't take you don't take a text like Macbeth and teach it for the inanities of the trivia to do with it. You teach it to sit there and say, does a monarch behave this way? Should a person do these things? Should a married couple behave in the way that they do with each other and with other people? Is this what we are meant to do? So I think, I think we're starting to see all over the world more and more and more folk doing that. Look, there are other projects that we're involved with, which in measuring and assessing character, and you know we're 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 developing some things in that area, which I'm going to be really excited that we're going to start launching a little bit later this year. You know, we've got our, our research will continue, and we're constantly getting people coming and talking to us about joining our projects. And anybody who's out there who wants to do that, come and find us at schoolfortomorrow.com. That's a schoolfortomorrow.com, and you'll you'll work out how to connect with us. And we keep going, we keep learning, we keep rolling with the punches and, mm. you know, we keep finding ways to improve outcomes for more learners. Fantastic. I'm, I'm so inspired and I know that those folks listening will also be. And so I appreciate you taking the time to share that with us, Phil. And so I'm going to ask you a quick question that I ask everybody, and that is what book should everyone stop right now and read? So I've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes for over 10 years now, and I haven't stopped reading it. I keep getting drawn back to Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules of, you know, 12, 12 Rules for Life and, he, and his follow-up one simply because he, he, he speaks so well into the, into the nature of purpose. But if you're going to read that, then you've got to read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. But, you know, if I'm really, really honest, you need to read that greatest of all children's book, I'm Going on a Bear Hunt. You know the one? I'm Going on a Bear Hunt. You know, because that's the book that, you know, that's the book that I used to read my children that I loved, loved, loved the most. And it speaks to our world today. Our, in our world today, we are surrounded by evil people who want to, who want to inject fear and doubt and anxiety uh, and trepidation into our lives when we should be approaching the world with, with hope and courage. So it is the things that teach us hope and courage that we should be taking inspiration from and rejecting. All of those people and all of those platforms and all of those things that would seek to divide us, that would seek to articulate ideologies and thoughts that separate us from each other, that stop us from seeking our common humanity and which set us against each other. And, you know, if it's not Mm. we're going on a bear hunt, then it might be Winnie the Pooh. It might be any number of books and texts. I don't know if I was Mm. if I was. I don't know, if I was talking to 17-year-olds, I would tell them to go and read Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sing, mm. you know, because if ever there was a book about hope, there it is, you know. You know, Phil, I used to think I was a pretty positive guy, but after talking to you, I feel like I've still got a long, a long way to go to be <laughs> such a positive guy. <laughs> you, you, are, you are too kind. Hey, Jason, um, I just want, yeah. I, I want to give a shout-out to the team from a, a yes, school please tomorrow do. Who, who are just just absolute champions. I, I'm, you know, quite often I, I'm, I'm the person who gets to be – you know, front-facing and do mm-hmm. a rabbit on like this and talk forever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a wonderful, wonderful team of people who, who just work their tails off every day because they really believe in what we're doing, and I'm so grateful for them. And if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. And they're much better at doing 
what they do. So I try and leave them alone as much as possible to do that. But (laughs) guys, you know who you are. Thank you very much. And in particular, I want to say thank you to Matthew Donlan, who's our Chief Operations Officer. He's over in Monterey in California at the moment, seeing his family. But he's been with us now for about seven years. And, and, you know, the stuff he's doing this year for us is just incredible. And you'd never see it because he's behind the scenes just, Mm. just working away. But God bless him. And Phil, if people want to get in touch with you and the team, what's the best way to do that? Okay, so you can find, come and have a listen to us on the Game Changers podcast, uh, which is available on Apple, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, and on Google Play. And you'll recognize it because there's pink and blue heads. And you'll see a <laughs> bloke who's bald with glasses, and that's and a beard, and that's me, and then a bloke with a shock of Italian hair, and and that's Adriano. <laughs> so you'll see you'll see that logo. Find us at a schoolfortomorrow.com. That's a schoolfortomorrow, all one word. dot com. You can find me on all the all the socials as well too. But Dr. Mm-hmm. Phil Cummins, you can look me up on LinkedIn probably if you're an education professional, or on Twitter if if you're a, if you're a chalky, or on Instagram. You'll find us all over the place. And, you know we. <laughs> We'd love to. We'd love to. In the words of Leanne Wilson, who is one of the partners of our firm and is a is a proud Bidjara Karakara woman who acknowledges her South Sea Island descent, she would talk about coming and having a yarn. Final thing I'd like. Final thing I'd like to do, if I can, I just sure. want to. Uh, this is something I, you guys don't do this very much in your part of the world, but uh, we need to acknowledge in my country that the, the great, yes. the gaping wound of mm. Australian history is our is, is our unrighteous and, 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 and appalling treatment of our Indigenous peoples for mm. so long, our First Nations people. So I want to acknowledge, I'm speaking to you tonight from the suburb of Fitzroy, Melbourne, which is actually Wurundjeri country, and I want to acknowledge Elders past, present and emerging and and thank them for their contribution to our mm. nation and thank them for their forbearance at, at our appalling history and the way and, and just hope that we can work together to, to overcome the trauma that's been caused mm-hmm. over time to our peoples. Thank you, Phil. I could not think of a better way to wrap this up. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me today, and I wish you guys the best of luck moving forward as we emerge from this post-pandemic time. Thank you, sir. Thank you, and thank you for the work that you're doing. And to all those chalkies out there, let's go. All right. Take care. Thank you, Phil. I hope you enjoyed that episode of DesignCast. I'm Jason, your host, and I produced and created this podcast. If you have any input, I would love to hear from you. And I look forward to seeing you again really soon. I am so excited to announce the launch of a new podcast network called DNA Podcast Network. The Design Network Alliance, or DNA, was founded by Evo Hanan and myself as a result of DesignCast number 16. We talked all about the need to connect design educators globally. DNA is a collective group of like-minded design educators from around the world. We have one simple mission, to connect design and STEAM educators with each other 
and with designers that want to make a difference in design education to make it better for future generations. The DNA Podcast Network is a hub for podcasts that cover the topics around design, design and technology, design thinking, STEAM, and STEM education. If you are interested in hearing more great content, head over to www.dnapodcastnetwork.ga today. Click on the thumbnail of the podcast that you want to hear and enjoy. If you have any other podcasts that you enjoy that cover similar topics, please feel free to get in touch with me and let me know so that I can look at adding them to the network. Finally, spread the word. Share with your network and your PLN and use the hashtag DNA Podcast Network.